Welcome to Keith Knight, Don't Tread on Anyone and the Libertarian Institute. Here is an article from the Foundation for Economic Education, Why Luxury TVs Are Affordable When Basic Healthcare Is Not. Monopoly products and services go up in price while competitive ones go down by Richard N. Larank. Imagine this. You are feeling under the weather. You pull out your smartphone and click the RX app. A nurse arrives in 20 minutes at your home. He gives you a blood test and recommends to the doctor that she prescribe a treatment. It is sent to the CVS down the street, which delivers it to your door in 20 minutes. The entire event costs $20. Sound nuts? Not so much. Not if healthcare were a competitive industry. As it is, medical prices are up 105% in the last 20 years. This contrasts with the television industry, which is selling products that have fallen 96% in the same period. Take a look at this chart assembled by the American Enterprise Institute. It reveals two important points. First, there is no such thing as an aggregate price level, or rather, what we call the price level is a statistical fiction. Second, it shows that competitive industries offer goods and services that are falling in price due to market pressure. In contrast, monopolized industries can extract even higher rents from people based on restriction. The graph shows price changes between 1996 and 2016. The Products and services that go up the most in that period are textbooks and college tuition. The ones that decrease the most are software, wireless service, uh, toys, and televisions. Consider each product or service shown. College is heavily subsidized, regulated, and exclusionary, and the costs are soaring. The textbook industry is hobbled by extreme copyright regulation and can depend on captive buyers. Child care is one of the most regulated industries in the country. Not just anyone can enter. Every aspect of child care provision is controlled by the state. On the other hand, software, wireless service, toys, and TVs, see free trade, exist in a relatively freer market setting. The price pressure is down. It's not that complicated, folks. If you want good services, good products, Innovative ideas and low prices, you need competitive markets. The more you control, the higher the prices, and the worse the results. Here is my interview with insurance expert David Dorn. Joining me today is David Dorn. He is the president and owner of Dorn Agency Incorporated. They specialize in employee benefits, life insurance, disability insurance, long-term care insurance, and Medicare supplements, primarily for firms under 50 employees. Uh, Mr. Dorn, is that uh, an up-to-date analysis of what the Dorn Agency does? Uh, essentially, let me just clarify, we do employee benefit work uh, for generally firms under 50. We have some clients over 50 employees, but we do a lot of health insurance. That's the bottom line, whether it be for those over 65, which is Medicare, and under 65, which is not Medicare, uh, everything else. So we do individual health, group health. Uh, I've been in the health insurance business and uh, other parts of the insurance business for 50 years uh, as of last month. So it's my 50th anniversary. Well, congratulations for that. Uh, that I, I certainly hope I could have that dedication to, uh, <laughs> to, 
to a field. Inertia. Uh, before, inertia. <laughs> inertia. Uh, before we get into uh, why the cost of health insurance is so outrageous uh, in general, what is the purpose of insurance? Well, insurance, by definition, is a transfer of risk from yourself, as an example, to others. Uh, so, in other words, you're paying a premium to somebody to take away a risk that you would have to incur in the absence of insurance. Good example, there are certain risks that we all have in life. Uh, one could be dying too soon. Okay, if we have a family, we have children, one concern is dying too soon. What do you do to solve that? You buy life insurance. That's all private, there's no government involved with that. It's very easy to do, it's very, a lot of competition. There are thousands of insurance companies selling life insurance. You hear the commercials all the time to buy it online. And the price, as a consequence, has come down dramatically for life insurance. Granted, people are living longer, but on the other side of the coin, insurance companies are making less on their investments. So every dollar of premium that they get, they're not making as much money, okay? But the good news is people are living longer, so they're paying out less claims. So that, that's what influences the rates, for instance, for life insurance. Uh, another risk is getting sick or hurt. Uh, then you have health insurance to take care of medical bills, and you also have potentially disability insurance to replace your income that you've lost. So those are some classic risks, Living, dying too soon, uh, getting sick or hurt. Another risk that happens to everybody, or not everybody, but potentially is living too long. In other words, you can outlive your money. Uh, and we're going to probably at some time during this conversation, talk about Social Security. And that is, in essence, designed allegedly to pay you an income for as long as you live so you never run out of money, in theory. But that's, as you know, a Ponzi scheme that we can talk about later. But. There is a, a general concept uh, that uh, many progressives uh, believe in, and that is that it is almost impossible for something like health care insurance, this for-profit-seeking industry, to be compatible with people wanting to live in some semblance of a society that takes care of the poor and allocates resources in a just manner. Because it's so expensive, they have no incentive to take care of you when you're 50 and 60, the time in your life when you need more health care than ever before. And it's very, and uh, you would ideally just want to uh, stop people uh, from buying insurance if they have pre-existing conditions. Uh, is it possible to have uh, health insurance in the absence of uh, heavy state uh, intervention? Absolutely. Uh, that was what it was 50 years ago. Uh, Medicare, as an example, started in 1965. I started selling health insurance in 1971. So Medicare was in its infancy. There was a viable, uh, competitive, private market for those over age 65 at that time to buy health insurance, okay? Uh, Medicare crowded out that private market over the years, and that market does not exist anymore. The last I recall seeing something privately over age 65 was maybe 15, 20 years ago. And uh, we can get into cost later, but it was very expensive, primarily due to increased regulation costs. And uh, again, competition, there was none other than Medicare. 
there wasn't a lot of competition. So basically, the government crowded out the private market for those over age 65. For all those uh, under age 65, uh, it was very inexpensive back when I started in the business. Uh, I like to use the example. I used to sell a family major medical policy for $12 a month, Keith that basically you had to have an underlying hospitalization plan. And Blue Cross is known historically as a hospitalization company. That's what they provided. That's how Blue Cross started back in the 20s and 30s was basically for hospitalization insurance because that was the most expensive thing you could incur was be a hospitalization, okay? was expensive, even relatively expensive, even at that time. And so consequently, Blue Cross create, got created to basically pull people's resources so they could share those risks and then provide hospitalization at some decent cost. So back then, a family would pay maybe $40, $50, $60 a month. And this was in Philadelphia, which is probably more expensive than other parts of the country big city versus rural, okay? You had more expensive healthcare back there. So back then in 1971, a family would spend 50, 60 bucks a month on Blue Cross for in case anybody had to go in the hospital, okay? And then they would pay on top of that maybe another 10, 12, $15 a month to have everything covered beyond that, like doctor visits, surgeon's visits, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so as a consequence, it wasn't very expensive to buy health insurance back then. So a lot of things have happened over the past 50 years. I've had to live through it. Uh, I thought, quite frankly, when Obamacare came around that I would be out of business. That was not the case. We're probably busier than ever. Uh, not in a good way necessarily, but we're busier than ever. <laughs> so we, we do a lot of charity work these days. Uh, where we help people but don't get paid, but that's okay. We we get paid too occasionally. So anyway, that's that's what happened 50 years ago. It's very inexpensive. We can go into all the reasons why, if you want, uh, what's happened over the past 50 years. Um, uh, yes. What well, what okay. has happened over the last 50 years that have skyrocketed the costs? All right. Well, let's start in uh, okay in 1971. What most people did for healthcare. Their doctors, uh, would, they would come to their home, okay? It would cost 20 bucks. You'd give the doctor cash. They would actually come to your house if you had a cold or the flu or whatever, okay, for 20 bucks. And That's I may be- That is incredible. I may be even exaggerating the cost. I don't remember, but I remember my parents paying, you know, the doctor to come to our house. And he was a neighborhood doctor, okay? So that's what most people did. They had a family doctor, you know, and, uh, you know, unless they needed hospitalization or surgery, it wasn't a big deal. So that's it. They paid cash. So what happened uh, in late 70s, early 80s? A few things happened. Um, one was um, people started to get major medical insurance. They had it through work. Okay. 85% of uh, people today in America are covered for health insurance through employment. Okay, that was not as big back then, but it was still probably over 50% that people had health insurance through work. It's grown over the years. Part of it is because employers get a tax deduction for the premiums that they pay. That's another story. We could talk about that. 
But the reality is that's where most health insurance today and then was provided for individuals through work. Okay, so people, uh, as they started to use these plans, okay, basically the biggest change was what's called third-party assignment of benefits. So what that means is instead of paying cash to that doctor, okay, the doctor said, well, I'll bill the insurance company on your behalf, okay? And do you, do you ever, I don't know if you ever ever gone to the doctor, Keith, but you get an, a, what's called an explanation of benefits and you get this multi-page form from the doctor's office with all these different code numbers, okay? 1,432.2, okay, as an example. That was your bill. So wh what, what are those things? Those are called CPT codes. And it's interesting who created those codes. It was the American Medical Association. And it's proprietary to the medical, American Medical Association. I've heard estimates they make about $60 million a year, the American Medical Association, just on the codes. They own those codes. Who uses those codes? Well, Medicare adopted those codes. As a consequence, the AMA had a built-in market the AMA, who used to fight Medicare when it first came out, they didn't want Medicare. All of a sudden, now, now they're in bed with Medicare because Medicare adopted this code system. And it became a game. It became a game for the doctors to see how many codes, how many different things that they could charge the insurance companies for. Okay, So insurance companies, that's where they got the reputation of, of not paying claims because they were fighting a lot of this fraud that was happening because they had this coding system that they could say, okay, you got seen instead of just for a cold, you got seen for a runny nose or congestion or a headache. So they had all these different codes that they could then bill for. Medicare, of course, which is a big bureaucracy, they paid everything. They didn't fight it. The private insurance companies, of course, because it was their own money, they started to tighten up on claims. Okay, so that was the biggest thing, the assignment of benefits. So instead of paying a provider in cash, you would let them do it for you. So from the employee's perspective or the individual's perspective, hey, this is cheap. I don't even have to pay anything right now. And... You know, the doctors and the providers and the hospitals, they're all taking care of that. So that was the biggest change. So it was a whole layer of bureaucracy that got involved. So what happens? Insurance companies have to raise their rates due to these increased claims and increased costs. So that's what's happened. Medicare also raised their rates. Okay. So uh, this is the biggest thing that happened. The other thing was the growth of the PPO and the HMOs. HMOs were back in the, uh, I think the law was signed in the 70s, if I'm not mistaken, for HMOs. And basically what that was, was a, originally like a cost containment advice, allegedly, where you would basically limit people to who they could see, which doctors they could see. They would be small networks of doctors, okay? And a lot of people didn't like that. They, did, they liked the freedom before, before HMOs of being able to see whoever they wanted. They didn't, they didn't have a network. They just see whoever they want, they pay cash, and they don't worry about it because they have insurance to cover that, okay? So with um, 
again, the PPO and the HMO, let's talk about HMOs for a second. HMOs are exclusive networks, very limited networks of doctors who are agreeing to accept less from the insurance company and less from Medicare, as an example, because they have a, a, a more patients that are being sent to them so they can charge less. This is the theory of it, okay? But the reality is they deny care. That's the only way they can make the thing work is to deny care, limit care, limit who you can see, and basically, that's the way they do it. They cut costs. Obamacare, all the plans in Arizona, let me bring it up to today, okay? There's the so-called Affordable Care Act. Well, it's not affordable for most. It is affordable for many due to government subsidies. But bottom line, it, if you have to pay a premium and you don't get a government subsidy, Obamacare or Affordable Care Act is very expensive, okay? All of those plans are HMOs. They, it's as uh, Michael Cannon from the Cato Institute calls it, it's a race to the bottom of who could provide the worst plan and the worst network. Why? Because they have to accept everybody regardless of their health. And they, how do they limit their care? By limiting the networks. So who has the worst network? Some of the biggest insurance companies in the world have the smallest networks because they don't want to pay claims. So it's a game, it's stupidity, it's, this is what it's become. So we're in the 50s, 70s, 50s, 60s, 70s, where you could pay cash for a provider. Yes, you had hospitalization insurance, it wasn't that expensive. Most people didn't go in the hospital. And if you did, it wasn't for that long. So now the whole thing is, they, they wanna keep you in the hospital because they make a lot of money. So, Are and you familiar? Yeah, I'm sorry. Ahead. No, I'm done. <laughs> I was just going to say, are you familiar with the uh, history of uh, Franklin Roosevelt and the Hoover administration thinking that out-of-control uh, wages would uh, keep the depression going? So what they did was they put a ceiling on wages and employers then started providing health insurance as compensation uh, to get the best workers because right. you legally couldn't pay them more. Uh, well, th you know, that's just coming to me. Uh, as uh, as ringing true, I think in Bob Murphy's work, uh, I didn't think yeah, of it, it until just it now. wasn't in the it wasn't in the thirties. It was during World War Two, okay, thirty nine to forty five. Uh, well, we came in in forty one, but basically, uh, it was in the, the World War Two. Is that's when they had the wage controls, okay, and price controls as well. But wage controls, that's where the big growth started with health insurance employer provided health because again it was deductible to the employer not includable in income to that employee and that's the way it is today sure so. uh now let's say uh there is a no state involvement in the insurance industry but there are still some people who already have a hard time uh purchasing food and uh, paying rent what if someone can't afford health insurance what uh is to be done with that person well, charity, uh, to be very frank and honest and simple. Uh, back in the 70s, there were many charity hospitals, okay, that would take the indigent if you needed to be hospitalized. And remember, hospitalization was the big scare of people. That was the big number, is if they had to go in a hospital. So there were charity hospitals, many of them Catholic hospitals, uh, Christian hospitals, mainly Catholics. They, they were the big ones in the charity hospital arena. 
And uh, these were charities. They raised money privately and they provided care for no cost for the indigent. That's the way it was done. What's happened? They don't exist anymore. <laughs> okay. All the hospitals are big conglomerates now. The hospitals have all been taken over by chains of hospitals, the small independent hospital. There's some, but not too many anymore. They're all part of big national chains. So can it be done? Yes. Uh, go ahead. Are you familiar with certificate of need laws? Yes, I am. Uh, could you uh, please give us a rundown of what those are? Well, if uh, I saw a 60 Minutes thing, a neighbor of mine sent it to me about uh, the high uh, costs of hospitalization in uh, San Francisco area. Okay. And the bottom line that they use that as an example is basically if you want to start a hospital to compete against the big behemoths there, you have to document that there is a need for your services. Okay. You've got to convince government bureaucrats that you want to, that you can make a living in the, in your business. It's not needed. It's stupidity. Uh, you know, if you want to start a business and you fail, you fail. There's nothing wrong with that. That's what capitalism and the American system is all about. But they're not given that opportunity to try. So they have to get government's permission before they can even start. So lobbyists from these existing hospitals, who do you think they pay off? The politicians to uh, not allow competitors. That's what it's about. So common sense. Uh, certificate of needs laws are stupid, like most other laws, and uh, not needed, but it keeps out competition, keeps costs high. Exactly. Well, uh, our opponents will look at, you know, there being hospital chains and uh, there being fewer startup hospitals, which lowers the supply, which increase the cost. And they'll just say, look at what the uh, evil free market has done. Are you familiar with uh, the progressives saying that if you need a license, a driver's license to vote, it drastically decreases the number of people who can vote because it, it increases the barrier to entry? And this is called voter suppression. Are you familiar with this argument? Uh, well, I don't vote, so I don't really uh, care too much <laughs> about the argument. The, but the, I, I, I think it's stupid to vote, but that's that's uh, between an individual and their conscience. The so. point is, is that they say... Well, it's horrible if you need to get a driver's license to vote because then, you know, people who are poor, they might not get a license and they won't be able to vote. They won't be able to get their voice heard. Well, what do you think 20,000 regulations, including a certificate of need regulation, does? Well, that really increases the barrier to entry for anyone to provide a hospital or any of these things we need. So when it comes to like the slightest thing, like filling out uh, the food stamp applications, the woman Katie Porter is like, she goes, these are, there's six pages and you have to fill all of this out and who can <clears throat> keep track of all this? And I go, I would have killed for that amount of small regulation when I was running my landscaping business. It, it's just uh, incredible. What is an example of uh, some regulations you run into uh, besides the terrible certificate of need laws that uh, you think increase the price of medical care and medical insurance? Every one of them. Um... I could, you know, there's so many, I, I wouldn't even know where to begin, but uh, certainly from the consumer side, Cobra, I'll bring up Cobra, where <clears throat> there's a cost to that. Um, Cobra is when you are with an employer and you leave employment, they must provide or offer you the continuation of that coverage for at least 18 months. 
Okay. It's a silly law that was started back in the 70s. Uh, and the thought was, well, there maybe somebody can't get coverage because of pre-existing conditions. So you had brought up before about the, uh, the indigent, what happens that there, but there's also uninsurables, okay? It's not just the poor who maybe have trouble getting insurance or can't afford it, but it's also the uninsurables. So that's always the objection we get when we want to talk about a free market of healthcare. Well, what about the people who are uninsurable? Well, again, charities can step in and solve that problem. If, if allowed, they're not, you know, it, it can be done today, but because again, we have all these government programs, the charities are crowded out from providing an alternative. So we can talk about the uninsurables as we go along, but that's the genesis of COBRA laws is that they were concerned, well, they had coverage through an employer, now they're on their own, they're working for themselves, they can't buy it. Well, that that was bullshit, quite frankly. The very The number of people that excuse my language, but the number of people that couldn't buy health insurance uh, is less than 2% of the population, well under 2% of the population. The people that truly couldn't buy it before there were things such as guaranteed issue or you know where somebody couldn't be turned down. So it was a problem, but not a super big problem. Okay, certainly it was a problem for the people who were uninsurable, but again, there could have been, if allowed, charitable organizations to take care of the people who couldn't get insurance. You don't need a government to do that. You don't need force to do that. It could have been done voluntarily if allowed, but it was never allowed. Now, uh, when you're uh, trying to sell someone uh, insurance, how do you convince people to uh, postpone the gratification of, you know, I could spend my money now or I could buy health insurance? I'm, I'm not sick right now. I'm never going to need this. How do you uh, convince people uh, to postpone gratification when everyone thinks they're the exception? I don't. You don't? No, I don't believe in forcing people to do anything, number one. And I think people should make their decisions. There are some people who could and probably should self-insure, okay, not buy insurance. I'll give you an example. If you've got enough cash or enough assets, you don't necessarily need insurance. You could do it yourself, okay? If you're young and healthy, you know, you could take that chance and not buy insurance. I understand that. Um, so that's just two examples of people who don't have to buy health insurance. Um, so, or you may have it through work or whatever. So there's, I don't persuade anybody to buy it. If they want to buy it, I'll sell it to them. But uh, the choices are not as good as they used to be, okay? Due to, again, government involvement and government regulation. Uh, the Affordable Care Act was the big gorilla that came in. It was signed into law in 2010. It got implemented in 2014, January 1st, 2014 is when it's really started. And ever since then, uh, health insurance prices have gone up dramatically. A care, uh, again, networks have gotten worse for most people. Choices are, are poorer for most people. So uh, it's gotten worse with this great grand scheme that the government came up with uh, to allegedly save people money. It didn't happen and will never happen. So it's, uh, get government are... out. <laughs> hey, yeah. 
uh, it, it's always sold to us as uh, you know benefiting the masses. It's for the common welfare. Are you familiar with the uh, history or origins of what could loosely be referred to as the welfare state? Well, sure. The, you know, Bismarck uh, in Germany, I think that he gets the most credit for our current welfare state. Uh, you know, he was he had Social Security. He had uh, disability benefits to people uh, back, you know, in Germany in the 1800s. So that's the genesis of it. And, you know, 19, uh, what, what a couple things happened. Uh, I was looking it up this morning, actually. There was a book that was written in 1913 uh, called The Jungle by Upton Sinclair. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. And basically, it was a book talking about how bad the factories are and all these people are coming off the farms and dying in these factories right and left like they didn't die in a farm. But, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, it was made it out as this terrible thing. And he was a socialist, the guy who, who wrote the thing. And uh, bottom line, in 1913, we got uh, the Federal Reserve and we also got the IRS and it didn't it wasn't until the 30s that we got Social Security under FDR and, um, you know, uh, Medicare didn't happen till the 60s. So it was kind of a gradual, gradual thing. Um, you know, uh, what could I say? It started in in Germany in the 1800s, started here with the progressive movement. Uh, again, 1913 is, a, is a, to me a real critical date. Uh, I think it's 13 or 14, I forget. And then FDR, Social Security, that was the big one. And Obamacare was just a further extension of that welfare state. Totally unneeded, by the way, Obamacare. And uh, this is actually widely accepted. Even someone like, I just want to quote from uh, Paul Krugman's old book on page 21 of uh, The Conscience of a Liberal. He says, in Germany, Otto von Bismarck introduced old age pension, unemployment insurance, and even national health insurance in the 1880s. Bismarck acted out of political calculation, not compassion. He wanted to head off potential opposition to the Kaiser's rule. Now, we're always told that we have the worst of intentions and we hate the poor and we secretly just want to help the Koch brothers become trillionaires. They explicitly have the worst things. Gun control laws, you know, having racist foundations along with the minimum wage. And th th they need to be held accountable for uh, for, for this uh, horrible nonsense. Um, question, how can we live without Social Security? Um you save your own money. It's very simple. Uh, Social Security is a bad deal for many people. OK, it's it's good for some. There's no doubt about it. Uh, you know, I did. I looked up some stats this morning about Social Security. Uh, they it's costing the government seventy one billion dollars per month in Social Security payments today. OK. That's what it is. I think that was as, as of 2020, close enough. Okay, 71 billion per month. Um, there's 46 million people that are receiving those benefits. Okay, uh, if you do the math, it's about 13 and 1400 bucks a month, which is the average payment for Social Security. Okay, so you got 71 billion. That's almost a trillion dollars. Okay, when you when you do the math. All right. We didn't even account the disability side of it, 
which is another uh, $10 billion a month. Okay. So, but just Social Security retirement benefits are costing the government $71 billion a month. Now, granted, there are Social Security taxes that we all pay under FICA. If you work and you have taxes deducted, you are paying a Social Security tax every month. You may not realize what it's for, but that's exactly what it's for. There's FICA tax, there's Medicare tax. And by the way, FICA tax pays for Medicare, but they don't have enough. So they have to add a new tax, which they did called the Medicare tax. And that's a 3% tax basically to an employer and an employee that has no income cap. At least the social security tax has an income tax cap. So if you make over $250,000 a year, I believe it is, you don't have to pay any more proportionally social security tax, but there's no cap on Medicare tax. All right. So the taxes are not enough to cover the cost of what's going out. Now you've all heard, we've all heard the story of the so-called social security trust fund. Well, there was a fund at some point in time, maybe in the 1960s, but not anymore. Uh, it's all a bunch of IOUs. There's no money in a social security trust fund. So what is it? By definition, it's a pyramid scheme or a Ponzi scheme because you have the people, the young people like yourself, Keith, who are putting into the system to pay for these 46 million retired, okay? Many of which have enough assets that don't need the money despite having all the taxes stolen out of their wages over the years. Okay, so it's a worse deal the younger you are because you're paying this big number for a longer period of time. When Social Security first started, there were very few recipients. They had, you know, nine workers for every person on uh, retirement. Okay, now it's a little over two. I think it's 2.3 or 2.5, something like that. And that's pretty scary. So there's less workers every year supporting more and more people on retirement. And I take my check. I'm on the dole. I admit it. I'm, uh, I waited till I turned 70, but I get my check. Do I need the money? No. Did I take it? You're damn straight I did. I, as I tell people, I'm recovering my stolen loot. That's <laughs> exactly. how I declare it. So I take Social Security and uh, <laughs> what can I say? It's, 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 it's not needed. Uh, that's the, the history of it is, uh, you know, the background of it. And it's grown tremendously over the years. As people live longer, obviously it costs more that they're paying out every month. And it's going to go bankrupt. We know that. It's just a question of when. You know, they're saying, you know, the late 2020s may be the first point where there's, uh, you know, not going to be enough uh, to, you know, coming in with taxes and everything else to, to pay. It's going to be in a negative. So I think we're already in a negative, but, uh, you know, it's going to get worse and worse. And eventually it'll implode. And there's, that's, that's always a good point to end on. Yes. Um, uh, and there's a 100% death tax. So if you pay all the way until uh, you're 64 and then you pass away, it's not like your family gets the uh, income from there on out for <clears throat> uh, the years you would have lived. Uh, well, I mean, that, that that's not quite true. Again, I'm not an expert on Social Security, but there are what are called survivor benefits. OK, so OASDI, I think, is the acronym for it. But it's 
just to, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt you, just to give you my source for that is Anthony Davies of Duquesne University. His claim is that there was a 100% death tax with regard to Social Security. Not trying to pin it on him, but just so people know that I don't just uh, make he, stuff up. It's accurate, okay, because, again, if you're not retired and you die prior to age 65, yes, you will not get a benefit after age 65 because you're dead. Okay, so I agree with his statement, but there's a, a and another part of Social Security that most people don't aren't aware of, that there's also a life insurance benefit that's paid, okay? And it depends on how old your spouse is and how old your children are, but there's a death benefit, a life insurance benefit under Social Security that's separate from the retirement scheme, okay? And as I mentioned to you, there's a whole disability disability scheme out there that is, you know, one seventh of the social security scheme, but it's still terrible and not necessary. And you're saying uh, disability as well as social security uh, should be done in the voluntary sector instead of the violent sector? Of course, of course. Uh, and again, and I, I look at it, I don't think people should be forced to buy disability insurance. If they want it and need it and they can afford it, they buy it. Uh, but otherwise, they're going to be what they're self-insuring. By definition, they're self-insuring. OK, if they get sick or hurt, they have to pay their living expenses out of their own pockets. Uh, Bob Murphy, uh, the economist, along with Murray and Rothbard, uh, both put forth uh, potential theories that this concept of insurance could actually be applied to property protection. And this is how we could almost have uh, governance in a free society. So no insurance company would have a recognized <clears throat> right to rule or confiscate your income. They would just be a separate organization where you uh, pooled risk. Uh, do you see uh, this as a possibility for property protection and what would be courts or conflict resolution? Yes, uh, absolutely. I think the insurance companies are the natural uh, people to handle that transition in that they are in the risk business, the risk management business. <clears throat> they manage risks. So that's another risk we're talking about. So uh, yes, and, and <clears throat> safety. It, it, we're talking about safety. So safety, the risk of <clears throat> being safe could be transferred to that insurance company. And they're already in the business of accepting risk. Okay. Uh, th that's how it would be done. There, Yes. I was going to say, there's a book uh, I read by uh, the Tannehills. Um, you know, that the, there were a couple, the Tannehills. Yeah, the Market for Liberty. I Market think it's for Liberty. Yes, I think yeah. that's it. And it's a short book, but it does mm -hmm. a wonderful job of talking about a private, non-governmental system, okay, using the insurance companies to provide all kinds of services that they're not providing today. <clears throat> and of course, you have competition privately, where when government provides it, you have no competition. Of course. Yeah. And uh, the, and all of the uh, shortcomings that sort of come to mind of, well, uh, what if an insurance company says they'll protect you, but they just don't? Well, that might happen, but at least you can opt out of funding them and go to someone else or just take your own risk. With the state, they almost explicitly don't protect your property and will defend rioters and looters. Uh, so long as uh, they are uh, calling themselves Antifa or uh, or BLM. 
Um, so yeah, every shortcoming of the private sector applies tenfold to the government uh, in, in almost every case. Um, let's get into a little more libertarian uh, theory. How would you define sure. libertarianism? Um, good question. Uh, just uh, I, I could take uh, Ernie Hancock's uh, one sentence, freedom's the answer, what's the question? <coughs> you know, it's about freedom. Uh, I start from a premise that you own your own body. Okay, let's all start there. <clears throat> now, if you don't agree that you own your own body, then we're not going to have a lot to talk about, quite frankly. Okay, because I, I don't, I'd have to talk to the person who owns your body. Okay, if you say you don't <laughs> own your body, I'd have to talk to them. Okay, because they're in charge, right? They control your body. So, whether you're religious or something, you may think, I don't own my body, somebody else does, okay? So I'm not gonna have a conversation with those people, all right? But for those others who believe that they own their own body, uh, I start with the premise that you could do with your body as you choose, okay? And you can also uh, feel confident that you own what you produce, that what you produce with your own body and mind and assets and everything else is yours. It doesn't belong to anybody else. You can voluntarily make an agreement with somebody to transfer assets back and forth, but that's all voluntary. So it's a concept of, of not using force, of volunteering your services. Uh, it's basically controlling what you do uh, yourself. Nobody else is making those decisions for you other than you. And we can extrapolate that to every possible issue in the world whether it be nuclear power or, uh, you know, climate change or whatever you want to talk about, we can extrapolate from that premise. So you got to start from some premise. And the premise that I start with is that you own your own body. Okay. Excellent. Uh, <clears throat> what is your elevator pitch uh, to a leftist or progressive as to why they should consider uh, libertarianism? Uh, I know you would ask me that question in advance to think about it. And uh, I know there are people who are more skilled speakers than I am that have a specific approach to a so-called leftist or a rightist or, you know, conservative, progressive, whatever you want to call them. I like to say, take the same approach uh, to everybody. Uh, you know, I would I like to ask questions and I would say, you know, do you think stealing is wrong? Okay, I'd like to ask them that question and, you know, extrapolate from there. Well, if they say, you know, yeah, I think stealing is wrong. Well, uh, what about uh, taxation? Do you consider that stealing? Uh, you know, we can get right into the meat of it. Well, no, of course not. It's not stealing. You have to take care of your neighbor. Well, I don't have to take care of my neighbor if I uh, give to a charity or just take money out of my pocket to give to a neighbor. That's voluntary, not force. So it's a concept of not using force. And it's, it's a progression. You have to get them to agree to something. So they'll say that stealing is wrong, but they have all kinds of exceptions when stealing is okay. Well, there was a guy, uh, Marshall Fritz was his name, who came up with a great speech many years ago called the, does, does wrong become right? if the majority approves? And my answer is no. If something is wrong, it's always wrong, okay? 
whether two people vote or 10 million people vote on it. I don't really care. It's it. it you know the difference between right and wrong. I know the right difference between right or wrong. And basically, you know, there's certain things you you learn in kindergarten. Don't hit somebody over the head and don't steal their blocks. You know, that's what you learn in kindergarten. Those are good rules. OK, don't steal. Don't hit somebody over the head. There's not much more than that. OK, yeah, there's fraud. There's other uh, crimes. But most of the things that the government spends their time adjudicating are victimless crimes. People where, you know, they're they want to put a drug in their body, you know, for their own benefit, allegedly. You know, that that's up to them. It, they own their body. And it's a total waste that we waste resources and time and people die and put in cages for something like that. The good news, that's changing. I've gotten to see that over the last 50 years. And that's that's a nice thing to see. I grew up in the uh, the I was a teenager in the 60s. So I, I uh, got to experience that whole thing. <laughs> so. Now, uh, the final segment here, I know you've been an anarchist for a while, so I want to ask you about some of your biggest influences that you and I have uh, discussed previously. What is the most important thing you learned from or contribution of Walter Williams? Well, Walter Williams is a, for those who don't know him, he was was a uh, black economist, died recently. I got to meet him for the first time in 1981 when I ran for U.S. Congress. He was a professor at Temple University, where I went to school. I went to college at Temple in Philadelphia. And uh, I called him up. He was a writer at the time. He was he was teaching economics at Temple University. This is before he went to George Mason. It was He was not famous at the time. Uh, he, he became a, a co-host uh, or a sub-host for uh, Rush Limbaugh. A lot of people know him from that. He used to do the Rush Limbaugh show when Rush Limbaugh couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. So Walter Williams was an economist. He's a black guy, grew up on the streets of Philadelphia. OK, and, uh, you know, uh, he uh, basically was anti-welfare and wrote articles and editorials and stuff about, you know, how welfare is bad for blacks. OK, so he would he was out there. He was different. And I called him up when I was running for Congress and I said, hey, can I talk to you? I just really wanted to meet him. And he gave me an hour of his time. That's the first time I met him. And uh, there was an article he wrote back then, uh, Welfare is Bad for Blacks or something like that title. And it was a great, great article. And uh, the bottom line, he was he was uh, on the edge. He was out there. How many black people had the courage to say that welfare is evil and is actually hurting black people? Not too many. All right. He was in the minority of a minority. So. I got to meet him then, and I got to meet him later in Phoenix, uh, probably about 15 years ago. <clears throat> and he's just a, a wonderful writer. So he's a hero of mine, one of my heroes that I put down there as somebody who a lot of people don't know about, but they should. He was a great economist, a free market economist, a libertarian. He didn't call himself, per se, a libertarian, but he was. Uh, a lot of people don't like that label. And I understand that because they confuse it with uh, libertine or librarian or uh, other things. So a lot of people, a libertarian is not necessarily the best word to describe who we are. But that's another story. What is the most important thing you learned from the work of Robert Ringer? Well, Robert Ringer uh, 
what wrote, he was a best-selling author back in the, uh, in the seventies. He was a, uh, he wrote a book called, uh, restoring the, uh, well, let me get to his first two books. His first two books were, uh, <clears throat> looking out for number one and winning through intimidation. These were business books that were bestsellers and he was well known. He, uh, he did a full page ad in the Wall Street Journal because nobody would publish him. And he became an overnight multimillionaire by selling all these books. He wrote his third book was called Restoring the American Dream. And that's where I saw the word libertarian. Now keep in mind, I'm now 28, 29 years old, uh, older than you, Keith. And uh, I th th that's the first time that I saw the word libertarian in print. Okay, that I recall seeing it in print. And it was at the end of the book. And it was a book about economics, basically, and free market economics. And I was new to it at that time. I was probably, you know, already a libertarian, but I didn't know the word. So he introduced me to the word libertarian. I got involved with the Libertarian Party, which I'm no longer involved with. But I was and got very active and involved and started to read a lot and go to uh, Libertarian Party conventions and all kinds of things. And that's how I learned about libertarianism and eventually decided, hey, I don't need to vote and I don't need to participate in this whole scheme. I don't even believe that libertarians should run for office. And that was a gradual process. I think you would ask me once. <laughs> it probably took me about seven, eight, ten years to make that transition from the small L libertarian, the one who wants some government, to feel that, hey, I don't really need any government. You know, to me, government, personally, government is irrelevant to me. They don't do anything for me. I don't need them. I don't want them in my life. I don't need them. Yeah, I take their Social Security check. Yes, I take their Medicare. But in absence of that, I know there would be a free market where I could buy health insurance. I know I have my assets that I've saved that I could live in the absence of Social Security. Okay, so <laughs> government's irrelevant irrelevant for me. Are they protecting my borders as the small L libertarian thinks that's a function of government? Not really. You know, uh, you know, people are coming through the borders all the time, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. But we have troops in 140 countries around the world. I think that's a bad thing. OK, they're tripwires. So if a tr one of our troops gets hurt in one of those 140 countries, we're obligated to defend that troop. And to me, that's stupidity. We don't need troops in 140 countries around the world. We don't necessarily need them here, but that's another story. <laughs> What's the most important thing you learned from Frederick Bastiat? Well, he wrote a book back in the 1850s called The Law. And it's, a, again, a short book, a brilliant book. He was way ahead of his time. In 1850, I believe it came out, uh, he was French. And uh, the French were not very libertarian in the 1800s. <clears throat> and uh, he wrote a book about libertarianism called The Law. And it was just brilliant. He talked about the seen and the unseen and uh, concepts that we talk about today, the broken window fallacy that people think, hey, I can just go break the window and now we'll employ, employ a glazier who can fix that window. And now he's going to have money and he can go buy shoes. And now we're supporting the shoe salesman for, because somebody broke a window. Well, that's a fallacy, as you know and I know. So it's an economic fallacy.
Exactly. Because that person would have spent the money elsewhere where they really desired it or they would have saved it. And for God's sakes, I've said it a thousand times. What is so terrible about saving with these Keynesians who say we always have to be spending and increasing the multiplier effect? It's like, well, no wonder you believe in Social Security because no one should ever save any money for their own retirement. Well, the point is, Keith, one second. If if you, as a young man, had the ability to put the money in a private account in lieu of paying Social Security taxes, you would have way more money at the end of the line than tr- entrusting that with the government. There's no doubt about that. No doubt about it. Yeah. And I've I've even seen research that, uh, you know, people will say, well, what if there's an economic crash? Even if you cash out during the crash, you have still earned more if you're, you know, loosely diversified within, you know, the Dow Jones 30 companies or even the S&P companies. You're still better off, even if you sell everything at the uh, absolute uh, dip because of uh, the, the interest. Most important thing you learn from Ron Paul. Well, I've, get, I, I've met Ron Paul a number of times, uh, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, he was, he was uh, everybody knows who Ron Paul is. So that's the best thing I can say about Ron Paul. Even progressives and conservatives know who Ron Paul is and what he's done. He ran as um, uh, president for the Libertarian Party back in the late 80s. 1988. I don't know if most people are aware of that, but uh, he called himself a libertarian at the time. And uh, uh, he was in the U.S. Congress for many, many years. Couldn't get a lot done, quite frankly, you know, just by virtue of of what Congress is and what it's about. Uh, However, he was a good mouthpiece to have. He was one of the few who talked about freedom and uh, liberty and some concepts that are kind of rare today. So he was a great mouthpiece for freedom and still is, you know, what could I say? He's retired now, but he's still out there helping the movement. Most important thing you learned from Lysander Spooner. Well, I didn't know about Lysander Spooner until I got involved with the libertarian movement. I wish I'd known about him earlier, but Lysander Spooner, man, what a brilliant guy. Um, in the, about the 1830s, uh, I think it was, um, he, uh, he wanted to compete with the Postal Service, okay? Uh, the Postal Service didn't like that. They didn't like the competition, okay? But he was able to deliver letters from, uh, I think it was, you know, the major cities on the East Coast for much less than what the post office was charging, okay? And to make a long story short, the Postal Service put him out of business. They didn't like the competition, okay? So he, that was one of his first things. And he became a great writer. He's written so many great things. Uh, You know, uh, one thing that I particularly like is uh, uh, the Constitution of No Authority. I think that's a good piece of his. He didn't think there should be a Constitution. And he wrote this back and again in the uh, uh, mid 1800s. And I also don't think that a Constitution is necessary to have a peaceful, prosperous society. I don't think you need that document that uh, Congress doesn't abide by anyway. Okay, it's it's kind of funny. Uh, you know, to me, there's all these laws that we peons have to follow, but the government doesn't have to. Okay, they they violate Article One, Section Eight all the time, every day. <laughs> <laughs> 
Exactly. Uh, how about David Friedman? Most important thing you learned from him? Gosh, uh, I've heard him speak uh, probably six, seven, eight times over the years. And uh, most people don't know, he was the son of Milton Friedman. You mentioned Uncle Milty before. Uh, Milton Friedman uh, was a great economist, uh, but his son, I think, has is, is done even greater things, in my opinion. Uh, his son is of the anarchist bent who believes that we don't need any government and has written some great books. And he just is a great speaker about why we don't need government. There are many forms of government, many he talks about other law systems, legal systems. He's a, he's a, uh, I don't think he ever trained in the law, but he teaches law. He's a brilliant, brilliant man. He just absolutely brilliant. And uh, he teaches history, law, economics. He's just a, a brilliant guy. And so just by hearing him, I learn. I learned that, yes, I, I don't need a government. They are irrelevant to me. I can live my life. I don't need them. What are they doing for me other than annoying me occasionally? So, <laughs> How about Henry David Thoreau? Well, uh, my favorite piece of his is um, civil disobedience. And there's a line in there. He was arrested uh, back in the 1800s for not paying income taxes. I don't know if you remember that, <clears throat> but uh, he was pretty famous back then. And But there's one line in there. We've all heard of Thomas Jefferson's slogan, uh, that government is best that governs least. David Thoreau, Henry David Thoreau, went one step further and said, that government is best that governs not at all. Okay, and that's my favorite line in the book. And that says it all. My government, that government is best that governs not at all. So what could I say? Uh, <laughs> a how, hero. How about Walter Block? Walter Block, uh, again, I like people who are a little edgy, and he wrote a book called Defending the Undefendable, yeah. probably written back in the 70s, 80s, maybe. 74. And, okay, and he was uh, defending, uh, I probably met him late 70s when I got involved with the libertarian movement, and, you know, got to hear all these great speakers that we've been, some of them that were alive who were talking about at the time. But uh it was just a great book trying to defend prostitution, defend gambling, defending the use of drugs, et cetera, et cetera. All the things that people assume are terrible, which they may be, but people have a right to do. So because they own their own bodies. And the only reason I'm uh, annoying with knowing it's 1974 is because whenever someone mentions the gender wage gap, that evil myth uh, that <laughs> totally is divisive. I say, do you know that there is an Austrian economist who debunked this nonsense uh, 45 years ago? And I can show him the text. And I right. go, you've been wrong for this long and you've had access to the Internet. He didn't have that. It, does this make you feel any more insecure with any of your other positions? <laughs> <laughs> uh, two more, uh, Marshall, uh, Fritz, anything else uh, you learned from him besides the excellent method of using questions to probe and bring out the inner libertarian and in everyone? Um, well, the one thing I think that he should get the most credit for, and it did a lot to bring people to at least the awareness of libertarianism is the world's smallest political quiz. He created, mm -hmm. he, he didn't create it, but he popularized it and grew it. Uh, my understanding is David Nolan, the founder of the Libertarian Party, 
was the guy who actually created the quiz initially. But Marshall Fritz took it and blew it apart. He was an IBM salesman, okay, great salesman, great communicator. And um, bottom line, he put that little quiz, 10-question quiz, you know, where do you fit on the political spectrum? You know, are you a conservative? Are you a liberal? Are you a libertarian? And it was a 10-question quiz, five questions on economics, five questions on uh, social things. And uh, at the end, you would score yourself and determine where you fit, okay? And more and more people fell in the libertarian quadrant, uh, and he popularized that. He got it in the hands of millions of people just by making it a size of a uh, business card. And oh, it was nice. a, a neat thing. The original one was the size of a business card. And... Um, so anyway, he was a good guy. He's now deceased. I, he Finally. slept. He slept in my uh, home more than once. <laughs> oh, good, uh, good story to have. Finally, most important thing you learned from Pendulette. Pendulette, uh, gosh, I go. I, I've never met him other than to, you know, uh, be ten feet away from him at an audience of his. Okay, and or after he performs with uh, Penn and Teller. Okay, Pendulette is half of Penn and Teller. I, I grew up in Philadelphia, as I mentioned, and Penn and Teller got their start in Philadelphia. Okay, I first saw them perform back in the early 70s. They were not known as Penn and Teller at the time. They were known as the, uh, uh, gosh, um, I, I forget the name. I'll, I'll let you know the name. Uh, they were a different name. They had a third person, too, in their group originally. But anyway, I, I became big fans of theirs, their magic, their performing, got to see them in Vegas a number of times, perform all over the country. I've seen them. And uh, bottom line, they're libertarians, both of them. And Pendulette is a great communicator, number one. He's got a great audience out there. And uh, he, he's just a brilliant, again, communicator. A lot of people I mentioned on my list that I gave you is... Many of them were great communicators of the philosophy, okay, in their own way. Pendulette did it through comedy and through magic and other things, and uh, he's just, a, to me, a great guy. Thank you to everyone for watching Keith Knight, Don't Tread on Anyone, and the Libertarian Institute. And uh, check out the description uh, for the uh, link to the Dorn Agency. David Dorn, thank you uh, for your time. Always thank a pleasure. Thank you, Keith. Take care.